I herewith officially initiate the YouTube Creators Union. This is the biggest investment in history in reaching out to communities and making sure that the part review process is done not only efficiently, but equitably. You say, yeah, you're aligned. And it's like, oh, well, what's that? It's like, well, we build power line. And then they kind of look at you funny. Whether or not you're in a union, you either benefit from having high union density near you, or you are harmed by having low union density near you. Like, my main critique of the movie is like, it's clear that like he like he's making these movies as anti-imperialist as possible. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, from the Fair Work Podcast, YouTubers get a union. Then, Stephen Shima on the National Environmental Policy Act on El Capacito del Dia. Bo Lindell talks about being a lineman on the Powerline Podcast. Sean Gundert, the new president of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, shares his vision for the Labor Council on the Working to Live in Southwest Washington podcast. And our final segment this week comes from the Art and Labor podcast team, which offers their take on director James Cameron and Avatar. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And as always, if you like what you hear, take a moment, subscribe, share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome back to the Fair Work Podcast. I hope you had a nice new year. We're back for the year, continuing our new series, Welcome to the Planetary Labour Market. This series is about forms of gig work that can be done remotely from anywhere in the world. It's about the emergence of platforms that manage the transactions between workers and employers scattered across the four corners of the globe. It's about the creation of labour markets that exist at the planetary level and the social, political and economic questions that this poses for workers. It's becoming almost pastiche to reference this statistic, but in 2019, a poll found that 30% of children in the UK and the US would choose being a YouTuber as their preferred profession, ahead of jobs like astronaut, musician, athlete, or teacher, making it the top-rated profession amongst school-aged children. It's a sought-after job, apparently. And as a cultural phenomenon, but YouTube isn't just a cultural phenomenon. It's also an economic and technological phenomenon as well, involving the use of a digital platform to manage a distributed workforce spread across the globe. And the practices and protocols that Google, the company that owns YouTube, employs have a huge impact on shaping the working conditions that YouTubers experience. I'm Robbie Waring, and in this two-part episode of the Fair Work Podcast, we hear from Jörg Sprav, a German YouTuber who runs the Slingshot channel. A channel where he makes homemade slingshots and launches. Jörg is a bit of an unlikely hero for the labour movement, but his story says a lot about what happens when we cut through the media hyperbole to view YouTube as a workplace like any other. So this week on the Fair Work Podcast, we hear his story of getting into YouTube, 
what it's actually like making a living from YouTube, what happens when the platform on which you've built your livelihood starts to make seismic shifts, and how he formed the world's first union for YouTubers. At some point, I remember I got the first check from YouTube, you know, so YouTube sent me a check and that's how they paid their creators for many years before they switched over to other payment forms. And I remember it was 88 euros uh, because they only paid out once. YouTube went from being a space purely for individuals to share videos with a wider community to one of potential income. YouTube became an employer, transitioning from being a social media platform to being a labor platform. The YouTube Partner Program shaped the relationship between YouTube and uh, users on the site in a variety of ways. So firstly, for those in the program, it's, um, it's a labor contract. It serves to structure labor. So in 2017, that changed. In 2017, following reporting from The Times, companies started to cotton on to the fact that their adverts on YouTube were sometimes appearing before, after, and even on top of videos posted by members of the likes of Al-Shabaab and ISIS. As some large multinational companies withdrew funding, YouTube was forced to act. That really was a major disaster for a lot of YouTubers. They called it the adpocalypse because it was like an apocalypse, but only for advertisers, advertising market. Uh, I know a lot of YouTubers who practically lost their entire channel due to it. So in... 2017 the adpocalypse happened um and you saw a huge decrease in in revenue from your youtube channel and what did you do about that all this to come on next week's episode of the farewell podcast launching monday the 23rd of january i herewith officially initiate the youtube creators union they have what we did not have they have the money they had experience how to work with really big organizations. You can find out more at fair.work. This episode was written and produced by Ruby Warren, and music was composed by Louis Bolles. Bienvenidos. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día. Brought to you by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, our conversations are inspired by the moments of togetherness that Nuestra Comunidad shares over un cafecito. Hola, my name is Maria Hernandez, and today we'll be sharing this cafecito with longtime ally Stephen Shima, Senior Legislative Counsel at Earth Justice. He works primarily on legislation impacting infrastructure and community input through the National Environmental Policy Act. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Our first question today is, what is the National Environmental Policy Act? Yeah, the National Environmental Policy Act, or the, it's called NEPA, is pretty simple. It's actually one of the first of a suite of environmental laws passed in 1970. It is sometimes mischaracterized as just an environmental law. It is more than that. It is a civil rights law, and for good reason, because it enshrines three core principles into all decisions by the federal government. Those are, one, transparency. It forces the government to disclose the impacts of their decisions on communities. Two is review. It forces the government to look at the impacts that a 
project may have on communities, whether that be health, economic, or environmental. Finally, it requires public input, and this is a critical part of the law. It is one of the only laws that forces the government to consult with the communities that are impacted by decisions. They have to have a say in the projects themselves. It is the broadest mechanism for public involvement in the federal government. There's actually a fourth principle that doesn't get talked about as, as much, that's accountability. It allows every person to hold the government accountable when it makes decisions that ignore the impacts on local communities or that are poorly played. It creates this process by which the government has to plan projects that are smart from the start that include meaningful engagement with the communities, disclose impacts on those communities, and give people the power to hold the government accountable when it ignores those impacts. Great, thank you. So you shared that NEPA requires that the federal uh, government ask impacted communities for their input before infrastructure projects are started. How can communities share their concern or support for specific infrastructure projects? There's a few opportunities within the NEPA process. There should be notice when there's a project being built in your community. Federal agencies or federal government that's involved is supposed to do that outreach and publicize notices, whether that be in the local newspapers. These notices have to be in the language of the impacted communities. So communities should always keep an eye out for those publications. Once the process starts, there's three opportunities for public involvement. At the beginning, before anything's done, before they start the review process, they consult the community to see what kind of impacts they should be looking at. And then they actually do the work of studying those impacts and they disclose them in a draft statement. And once that draft statement's published, there's an opportunity for the public to weigh in or notify the federal government on potential impacts that were ignored or were not studied in enough detail. When the final review document is published, communities get an opportunity to come in on that as well. So there's three critical opportunities for community engagement within the NEPA process. To reiterate, this is the broadest mechanism for public involvement in the federal government. So there's over 80 agencies that implement this law, and each agency is required to consult with the public when they're doing these major projects. So NEPA was signed into law in 1970. Since then, dozens of legislative and administrative projects have been proposed that would weaken it. Can you tell us about the current state of NEPA and any legislative projects aimed at attacking it? Yeah, absolutely. There's good news and there's bad news on the legislative front. The good news is with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, there was historic funding provided in that piece of legislation to approve NEPA implementation. I'm talking about improving the permitting process by giving agencies the resources, staff, and funding that they need to engage with communities to make input more meaningful. This is the biggest investment in history in reaching out to communities and making sure that the permitting process is done not only efficiently, but equitably. On the bad side, the bad news is there is still legislation out there that is aimed at rolling back public input, aimed at rolling back the environmental review process, aimed at rolling back government accountability. We've seen these kinds of attacks in the past, but the difference now is communities are speaking out and they're saying, no, we want to be able to hold the government accountable. We want the impacts disclosed. Stephen, the time you spent with us helped to sweeten lo que a veces seems like a bitter cup of coffee. And as we all know, once you wake up and smell the cafecito, you just can't go back to sleep. Hasta la próxima.
What's up? Welcome to Powerline Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Lucas. All right, guys, this is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time. I was able to get it done right before Christmas, being on the road ever since Christmas with a pretty intense schedule. So finally getting to edit this podcast and get it out to you. Really stoked about it. His name is Bo Lindell. He's a Canadian lineman. Uh, We talk about a wide range of stuff from transmission line work to mental health. And it's just a great conversation. Loved every bit of it. And you guys are going to get a ton of value out of it. All right. Okay. Bo, (laughs) stoked to have you on the show. Finally, I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, I started like working my way through a list of like people on, on the internet or on socials that I've communicated a little bit, a little bit with in the past and just kind of working my way through these, these people. And, um, I, f- I feel bad for someone like Terry. I just had Terry on the show and like Terry's, I should have had him on like way long ago, but, um, regardless, um, I'm stoked. Like you're definitely one of those guys that I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I'm, I'm glad we made this happen. I'm glad you took the time to make it happen and, uh, welcome to the show. Right on. Yeah, I appreciate uh, being on here. And uh, yeah, I can say that I've always listened and I always, you know, it's always been something I wanted to do was sit down and talk with you, even just to get to meet you, actually, not even just be on the show. You know, whenever people talk about trades, and I think especially in uh, coming out of school, um, like high school now, when you talk about a trade, you generally think of like carpentry, plumbing, you know, welding, uh, you think about those and you never, a lot of people don't really think about like, oh, well, power line. And that was one thing I found kind of growing up was because I got into it young and then stay like if I was ever out, um, I'll just say like in a club or something and you're talking to people yeah. and you say, yeah, you're a lineman. And then it's like, oh, well, what's that? It's like, well, we build power line. And then they kind of look at you funny and they're like, okay, so like, and they always say, depending where you are, it's the local utility. They ask if you work for them. They're like, oh, you work for, say, Manitoba Hydro or BC Hydro. And then, you know, then it's, you get into explaining, no, 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 we, you know, we kind of work all over Canada and this and that. And, but yeah, it's, it's not uh, like the other trades as far as uh, people out there being aware of it. So yeah. um, stuff like this, you know, it, yeah, because a lot of people, they don't even know what to think. Like, oh, you know, be a power lineman. Well, then this is where, like, these sources and that can help so much on what it actually is and what to be prepared for. So, 100%. I think the recognition of our industry and our trade has it's increased in one way, especially in the United States through um, our storm efforts and our, you know, our storm restoration efforts. But unfortunately, some of that isn't the best representation of what we do. A lot of it is, but then, you know, you get the uh, you get you get a lot of things happening. You get a lot of different sorts of people merging in one area. Let's put it that way. When when storm yeah, happens, yeah, oh, it definitely comes in waves when people are reaching out and that. And uh, yeah, it's all kinds of uh, different kind of questions too, like. Uh, um, my favorite ones are just kind of the ones when people, I guess, want advice, you know, or like, I guess it sounds bad, but if they're having a hard time or, and then you can give them some good advice to, you know, like, you know, just, you know, sometimes stuff is hard. 
you know, when you're you're dealing with your career. Um, I think a lot of younger people, everyone wants to move really fast and move up really fast. And, you know, sometimes you got to tough it out, you know, so you might be on a job or you got to tough it out for that job and the next job's not going to be the same. So, you know, it'll build more character or your name, I guess, because our I find our name's a very big thing in the industry. Um, just your name and what your name carries. So, you know, that's always something to mention, you know, stick it out. And unless you're depending right on what For the sure. situation is fully, but yeah, I tell, I tell people quite a bit that exact thing, like your name and reputation show up on a job site long before you even get there. So, you know, try to make sure that it's a good one because you can rest assured it's getting there before you are. Yeah. Lots of content planned for this year. Super exciting. Just want to keep communicating that to you guys and say, I love you. Thank you so much for hanging out with me over the last few years. Or if you're brand new to the podcast, I, I hope you like it. I hope you're getting some value out of it. It's a super awesome industry. Powerline industry is not just powerline industry, but trades in general you can change your life and change it for the better. All right, guys. Love you. Peace. Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 35 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington. I'm Harold Phillips. As some of you may already know, my regular co-host Shannon Myers resigned her position as president of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council at the end of last year, and with it, her role here on the show. But hey, the news isn't all bad. Because as Shannon has stepped down from her position, new leadership has stepped up to help guide organized labor in Southwest Washington into 2023 and beyond. And we've got a chance to get to know that new leadership today. We're going to meet the new president of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. His name might just be a little familiar to you if you've listened to previous episodes. It's Evergreen Education Association member Sean Gundert. Welcome to the new office, Sean, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Harold. It's so good to be here and be serving in the office. Now, you were serving as vice president of the Labor Council before you were elected president. What's the difference in those two positions? I had a time or two where I ended up chairing the Labor Council meetings as Shannon had to be away. But a lot of times the vice president's role includes the language of duties as assigned, and my duties as assigned was running the political action committee. So for the last year, I ran our political program. A lot of people don't really know what the Labor Council does, what it's all about. Are the committees a part of that, what it's all about? They can be, and they should be. We have our political action committee, as mentioned. We have ethical practices committee, which handles anything that comes up that needs to take a close examination of as far as how things are going in our processes. We have our ULSTC, which is our Union Label Service Trades Council. We have our Southwest Washington Works Together Committee, which I was chair of for a few years. That's some of our external organizing work. It's growing our own capacity as a labor council. External organizing, what does that mean? Yeah, so in unions, we have external organizing, we have internal organizing. So internal organizing is how we work with our own members and how we build power together within our own unions and locals within our council. There's an internal structure to that. You know, our internal organizing as a labor council might look like 
shoring up our delegates, showing up to meetings. External organizing would look like anything that we're doing outside of our union, working with other working folks. So helping people to grow their own union strength, working together across locals to meet desired goals, meet outcomes. Like a lot of us, for example, are spread across multiple unions in the same sector. And so we have similar interests or we have similar needs. A lot of us work for the same employer, but under different unions. And so there's really benefits to being able to collaborate with each other because that's how the boss wins us through division. And so if we can unite across locals, across our bodies, across all of our folks working in the fields that we do, we can make big wins together. And that's what external organizing is, is doing that external work with other people. You know, Sean, we've been talking about the unions that make up the Labor Council, but why should our listeners who aren't members of unions care about what happens at the Labor Council? What difference does that make in their lives? So first thing is, if we just look at the numbers, we look at the statistics, we look at the financial info. If we look at areas that have high union density, we have areas with higher overall economics. We have places where people make higher median wages. Whether or not you're in a union, you either benefit from having high union density near you, or you are harmed by having low union density near you. And when we have areas of low union density, they are a product of people deliberately attacking the working class and undermining how much money we make, what our working conditions look like, and so on that affect us on the day-to-day basis. So unions matter whether or not you're in one. Well, I just want to say thank you for joining us. My new boss, Sean Gundert, president of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. Oh, that's 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 a four-letter word, Harold. <laughs> my new comrade, who also happens to sign my checks. How about that? I'll take that one. And thank you, working people, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. We'll see you soon. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Art and Labor. Uh, I'm here with your hosts, uh, OK Fox and me, Sarah. And um, how are you feeling today, OK? What's going on? I'm good. I'm, I'm low energy, but I'm good. You're, um, you're vibing. I am vibing um, and trying to, trying to do thriving. Yeah. Um, you're officially yeah. free from... Uh, I no the sh- longer work the shackles for- of the <laughs> nonprofit industrial complex. That's what I heard. Rumor on the block. <laughs> That's right, Sarah. Um, <laughs> and um, my first day of liberation, officially, I, I, I went to go see Avatar 2 with you. And that was the that. first day? Wow. Kind of like that was like my first week wow. not working there anymore. And you saw the possibilities. You saw what could be mm-hmm. and what yeah. if there was just the political will. Yeah. So I kept on getting these like recommended videos of James Cameron talking about that, like all of these yeah, like interviews and shit. And uh, <laughs> James Cameron apparently in the first Avatar had huge fights with the studio about all the flying scenes, and they mm. were like, "There's too many flying scenes, and it doesn't do anything. It doesn't move the plot forward at all." And he, he talks about like 
you know, I take a page out of Stanley Kubrick's book, which funny, we'll put a pin in that. He I really take, does be doing that though. I, I, I take a, I take a page from Stanley Kubrick um, where I want to see the flying. So if I yeah. want to see the flying, that means people want to see the flying because it looks good and it feels good to watch it which is a really great distillation of why I do think James Cameron is kind of an interesting director because he's like, it's like Avatar is an extremely specific vision by somebody who is extremely tapped into the mainstream. Like, yeah, it it's, it's a very bizarre type of person to be, I think. No, Where, he's you, an iconoclast for sure. Like you no, can't no, deny. I think the opposite of an iconoclast. <laughs> he's like a ponytail threaded up to Awa, yeah. like popular consciousness to the collective unconsciousness. Uh, where his really specific tastes are like very reflective of mass, like uh, uh, what the general. No, no, I get what you're saying. So the funny thing about when I had like first found this out and you kind of watch when you hear like oh james cameron his whole life has been about developing avatar when you kind of break that down and you start to see his other movies you start to ask yourself like what like why did you make terminator 2 then and then i'm gonna cry thinking about (laughs) you know and so like i had i had had this kind of like the missing puzzle piece for me was always what i thought was (laughs) James Cameron made Titanic because he needed to fund the deep sea subs that did not exist at the time. He needed to fund the research and development of those submarines because then they go underwater and that's 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 research for like these crazy whatever fucking animals that are going to be on that are at the bottom of the ocean and shit. And then it turns out, no, he just he just had to do Titanic because he had a kind of Titanic scene. Like he had yeah. a kind of Titanic movie within Avatar 2. <laughs> and it's like, like, oh, okay. He just needed to know what happens when a ship goes he's down. He's been in training. Like he's been training <laughs> and training and he's been ha- ha- holding on to his OCs from when he was 15. And it's like, it's interesting because it's like, yeah, he, he – exemplifies the type of like critique that like I always talk about when we, we talk about like um, uh, in defense of poor image, like the creating the need for the big fancy new technology mm-hmm. is imperialist. <laughs> so that's like my main, <laughs> like my main critique of the movie is like, it's clear that like he like he's making these movies as anti-imperialist as possible. Like yeah. like it's like so direct. Yeah. Like you can't get more direct than what he's right. doing. Yeah. Um and yet it's still not an anti-imperialist movie yes. because yeah. the, the the production yeah. is a justification or it's it's a blueprint. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a way forward like what like when with the submarines, like you're saying, or like yeah. in the new one, it was it became clear to me like my third eye opened up way big. <laughs> like, oh my god! Like Stanley Kubrick <laughs> did fake the moon landing, and James Cameron f- 
like in his studio or whatever made all of those Boston Dynamic robot videos right. that are like being used for policing and being used for surveillance over the very populations that you know the movies claim to want to liberate allegedly let's have fun let's have fun let's have fun lots of fun And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 100 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.